I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Jimmy Santiago Baca, a well-known poet from New Mexico. He's the author of a lot of books. Well, I'll just mention that back in 1987, he got the American Book Award for Martin and Meditations on the South Valley. And a couple of years later, he got the Hispanic Heritage Award in Literature. He conducts workshops virtually all over the country for adults and children in schools, reservations, barrio community centers, housing projects, uh, correctional facilities and prisons. And in 2004, he started a nonprofit organization called Cedar Tree Incorporated. And through that, through charitable donations to the foundation, uh, that supports the workshops and, and other projects. They've produced a couple of documentary films and the organization employs ex-offenders as interns. His latest book is getting some good reviews and notice. It's a book-length poem entitled, When I Walk Through the Door, I Am an Immigrant Mother's Quest. And Jimmy, let's start there because it's just such an interesting thing you've done there. What can, what, what can you tell me about uh, where that came from? Well, Charlie, it's uh, actually the titles when I walk through that door. That door. Gotcha. That door. Yeah, I mean, it's so easy to say when I walk through the door, because that's what we do all day. <laughs> right. But when I walk through that door. Uh, you know what? No, it's just that we have we have a, um, in the Southwest, uh, we have an awful lot of, uh, we share a, lot, a long, long border with Mexico. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for... 500 years at least, well, before the border was there, actually, it was just one big cultural family here. And then you had the English come, then you had the French, then you had the Americans, and everybody that comes wants to put a a border, uh, they want to draw a line, you know, somewhere saying, this is ours, this is yours. But culturally speaking and legacy speaking and religiously speaking, there is no border there. It's just... You know, we have family there. Their families have people here. And and uh, I just thought, you know, uh, because of politics, mm-hmm. uh, there has been uh, so much, so many atrocities committed against Central Americans. I mean, you know, we don't have the time to go into it all, but mm-hmm. we've gone down there and we have screwed their screwed their land up so much. We've taken every mineral that's available from them. We've gerrymandered and manipulated the politics there. We take pretty much anything we want to do, we do there. It's sort of our backyard for for all the illicit and immoral practices that we lower ourselves to. And so those people have to come here. And, uh, you know, it's just another legacy of rape and corruption and graft and greed and dictatorships and oppression and and uh, concentration camps and really these are some of the kindest sweetest people i've ever met so i don't know you know i decided to write this book because after a while you just get really really tired of you know them being victimized and demonized and scandalized and their plight being politicized you know so i wrote the book 
Yeah. Uh, when I walk through that door, I am. It's about a young woman who comes north with her baby mm. after they murder her child. I mean, her husband. Yeah, some people um, were were complimenting the book on the fact that it really puts a an individual specific human face on the issues. Mm-hmm. I don't know, and that that seems like that that's important, and it gives it a different kind of perspective and and awareness you know, for the reader. You know. Yeah, I, I just I I came at it I came at it uh, uh, from the from the motive of wanting to tell people that we're Americans and and we're not we're not these idiots in office we're we're really super basically good Americans and that's what this story is it's it's us really really caring about the truth and it's us uh, embracing people who come to this country, you know, and I mean, Americans are just, we're, we're just amazing people. And, and if this, if it rang true, this whole, this whole, uh, adage that one apple can certainly spoil a few others in the barrel, boy, have they done it now? Yeah. Because, uh, I know so many Americans of so many ethnicities and backgrounds, different religions, and they just, they're all good people. So what I'm kind of wondering who's, Who's throwing this burning line of fire between us that doesn't allow us to reach out to each other again and doesn't allow us to become a national community again? And what's all this inveterate hatred toward each other, this acrimony that's based upon made-up facts by some idiot in office, you know? Yeah. So I wrote, so I figure poetry is like, you know, it's the place you go to if you want to try to commune with truth. And I certainly needed to do it because I was, um, and you know, I just really, I like truth. Communing with truth is not, it's not an effort. It, it feels good. And it's nice. It's like you're talking to your family in the morning. There you go. I've got five, five children and, you know, the three are on their way. To, three or two are finished with college. One's in college and two are on their way. And uh, I honestly can say that one of the things that have kept us kept us um, morally healthy is really trying to be honest with each other. And I think that reaches out over into national politics, into education, into justice, into prison reform, is trying to be honest with myself, you know? And I understand truth in the sense that if you cage a dog in a cage, it's not going to civilize it. So, okay, we're doing that to human beings. So, that's the truth. So I'll accept that truth. I'm not going to civilize this human being by locking this human being in the cage. By denying medical treatment to this person, it's not going to serve to heal this person's wounds. So what do I need to do? I need to step up. And that's, that's the great burden of democracy, I think, is that it insists that we engage. And, you know, we've, certain, we've gotten to the habit of turning our backs of you know, putting in swimmers' plugs in our ears so we don't hear it. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, the easiest way to do stuff is probably just to blame other people. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be, you know, the way to do it. Yeah. So you just confronted this. How long did it take you to write this book? Did it pour out, or was it a, kind of a struggle? Or no, issues? I did it about, yeah. about six months. Wow. So I had a friend of mine. Well, I didn't have a friend of mine. Uh, as usual, you know, I um, 
I um, uh, I'm not a real devout Catholic, but I I do have a a, a Catholic upbringing, you know, mm-hmm. and and uh, and I do like to, you know, go to church now and then when I can, but but I was listening to the radio one day when I was driving, and um, it said that they they had a family with the man from Burma, who. Uh, who had his entire village burned out, and he had uh, two mentally ill daughters that he took care of, his wife and a couple of other smaller kids, and that they found their way to America, and that he had he had escaped his own death and the death of his family by only minutes. Whoa! And that they were looking for somebody to help them. So I drove immediately to Catholic Charities and said, "Hey, I'd like to help." And so before I knew it, I had this wonderful man. That I was that I employed, uh, working with me to build the cabin up in the, at this farm I have, and uh, the more I got to know this gentleman from Burma, the more I, I fell in love with this man. I fell in love with his humility, his modesty, his inner strength, his silence, his work ethic. I mean, I was like, wow, you know, I got to tell you something, and I'm not I'm not disrespecting Americans or America, but this guy could outwork anybody I ever knew in America. Mm. I mean, this guy was something, man. This guy was, I mean, he was happy to work. He was jubilant to get up in the morning. He didn't eat that much. I mean, he was like, oh, God, he was religious. He was pious. He was respectful. And uh, to think that somebody went in and burned his house and wanted to murder his family because he believed in Christianity? Holy crap. Yeah. So, yeah, man. So, you know, I stood up stepped up, embraced him, and said, let's go to work. Anyway, he did work for me for about six months, and um, I went to pick him up one morning, and the neighbors told me that in the middle of the night, ice had broke his door down and taken his entire family out with handcuffs. Oh, whoa. And I was devastated, because oh I, I was planning on giving this guy an acre of land. I was going to give it to him as a gift. And I said, what? Uh, and I looked at the door, and they had, they had shattered it. And they had taken even the children out in plastic handcuffs. And I was like, son, oh God, how do I react? How do I do, what do I do with this? What do I do with this outrage? What? As an American who's been here for 500 years, what do I do with that? I mean, the only thing I can do is write poetry. Right. Yes. And I sat down and I wrote, when I walked through that door, I am. I bought a young woman leaving El Salvador, and they kill her husband because he refuses to pay uh, bribery to the gangs. They, they say, if you don't pay us, we'll kill you. And he didn't want to play that game, and they killed him. And the last, his last words were to his wife, please go north because America is a sanctuary for injustice in the world. Yeah, You can go there, and, and, and you can go there, and if you're unafraid to work and unafraid to to really engage in the culture and stuff, you could have a really good life. And she does. But, it, but you know, the way the journeys run these days, it's not Don Quixote <laughs> right. with the wind anymore. You know, she comes north and they rape her, and the officials that she goes to for refuge are the very ones who rape her. And then she goes into a concentration camp, and guess who comes to visit? Trump. And the book itself, she's wondering why they have sharpshooters on top of the buildings and what they're preparing for. And then she sees this long, long line of dignitary black black cars, black limousines coming and Sam, it's the president. And he's come to showcase it on Fox News how great they're doing. 
you know. Mm. But then when he leaves, they resume normal business at night. All the young women are taken out to go, you know, um, party with the older officials, you know. Mm. And it's routine. It's been it's been put into documents hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times that this is what's happening. But you know, it gets lost. So mm. what's the poet's job? Is to retrieve what they try to hide. Yeah, and I, that's what I've done in this book. So when I walk through that door, I am, yeah. and it's published by Beacon Press up in your area. I yeah, believe. Boston. Yeah, they're in Boston. You you want to read yeah. a little bit? Oh yeah, I can do that. That'd be nice. We, should, we always like to include some of your original poetry. Yeah. And this is, it's a book-length uh, poem, right? That's that's yeah, a really interesting. Poem. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. This is how it starts, and then I'll, I'll, I'll read you something from the middle. Okay. And then we can talk poetics. Yeah. In San Salvador, Donal, my marido, that means husband, Works night shift knitting clothing for export. Gangs tax the workers half their check. But Donald refuses to pay. We have a four-year-old, Joaquin, but they don't care. On Donald's way home last night, 4.30, in bed. When I hear angry voices outside, you pay or die. Wheels screech. Door slams. Donald's voice begs for mercy, then shots. Boom! Boom! And the car squeals off, leaving Donald's jagged voice. Sophia, ayúdame, ayúdame, Sophia. And I rush from the bedroom, draw my yarn blanket and slippers on. Llama and sheep wool, Donald made for me on our fifth anniversary. I dash into the night across the street, collapse next to Tonal, kneeling under the streetlight in the neighbor's stone dirt driveway. And I cradle Tonal's body on my lap. Mi amor, mi amor. I weep as blood pools in the dirt. I tug his arm. Mi amor, mi amor. No te mueres. And he groans. Corre pa'l norte, mi reina. Comijito, vete, mi amor. Corre o te mata. And I scream, stay awake. Stay awake. Blood surfs from his thighs, ladles out from kneecaps like potato peelings on the cutting board. And the stones in the dirt witness. And the stones ask, and the stones take, and the stones tell. Lay on us, they whisper. We will absorb your sadness. Mm. So that's the way it opens up. Yeah. And, um, Here's um, where they, uh, uh, she has to come north on the train, and of course, uh, they do things to her that that's not not even human. But anyway, here 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 is something the way she begins to say. Um, she says, Tomal and Joaquin's eyes. Shine like the sun. As if to say, Mama, healing is the word for challenge. Is another word to dream what is possible. They convey looking into my brown eyes, all of us. 
who journeyed undocumented from cosmic sunlit regions of the universe into earthlings with hands and mouth, lips, breast, ears, toes, hips, like all of us, once a child filled with questions, Mama, what is that? His first sensual exploration into the world sparked light in his heart, brimmed seeds of his originness. What is that? I say a chili pepper. And in the bell tower, I say a pigeon. And dirt between fingers, I say sandbox soil. And that, feeling my lips on his cheek, I say a kiss. And when he kisses me, I ask, oh, what is that? And he says, love, mama, love. Hmm. Yeah. Well, there you have it, Charlie. Oh, man. That's good. Yeah, and it goes on and on and on. She ends up in Virginia at the University of Blacksburg, up there in Virginia somewhere. Oh, yeah. And uh, she ends up there. She ends up living in uh, General Jackson's horse stable. And uh, and it's kind of interesting because... Uh, uh, she writes letters to him from uh, that she's going to find him someday, her son. Mm. But yeah, there it is. Man, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a hell of a story. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. You got this uh, tremendous empathy, you know, that really, that really comes through. I get the feeling of how you're feeling for the, for your characters, you know, in your writing. This and other mm -hmm. things too, you know. It really comes through. Thank you. Um, you know, I think uh, there's a lot of us, you know, a lot of us people out here in the country, you and me and my wife, you, I mean, all of us, your wife, all of us somehow add to whether we're being empathetic enough or not. And I think over the years, uh, the people I've known in the literary world, the poets I've known, uh, have shown me great empathy for my own journey, mm -hmm. you, you included, and um, have shown you know great understanding and empathy and compassion for me having come out of prison like I did as an orphan and going on to the world and making mistakes and learning by my mistakes and stuff like that. I think a lot of you have taught me empathy, and I in turn share it with the people I know. And uh, so goes the wheel, you know? Yeah, it's 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 good that you're going to be um, the the featured poet. I should mention this for people: the National Association for Poetry Therapy next uh, March will have their annual conference in Albuquerque, and our man Jimmy here is going to be the featured poet. And so, if you go to that, if you go just Google Nas National Association for Poetry Therapy, you'll get to their website, and uh, you can see some preliminary information about that. Well, you know, I think uh, I think the whole idea that poetry therapy. I think people think about think of, people think about poetry therapy as in the same conventional uh, manner that they think of as therapy. You know, mm. and uh, I don't think that's really what it's about. I think I think poetry therapy is not about poetry therapy as much as it is about people who are continuing to try to stay involved with healing themselves mm -hmm. and, then, and then sharing that. So it's a, kind of share, it's a kind of sharing that hasn't got to do with therapy as much as it has to do with the courage to open oneself up 
with a, to another person using poetry. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that search so, for honesty or confronting. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's the obligation. The obligation that if if you're still living after what you've been through and all the trauma that you've overcome, then you're obligated to pass that on. Yeah, and I think that I think that's the obligation for poetry therapy is that you pretty much have to be a, you know, you got to be a pretty tough person to be there. Yeah, you know, did you ever hear about these two old guys working in a tire shop? I don't think so. I think they're gonna love. This is all about. Uh, this is all about that the whole uh, thing, you know. Um, okay. Um, all right, here we go. Uh, it's called Tire Shop. It comes from healing, my book, Healing Earthquakes. Mm. And it's Psalm 27. Tire Shop. I went down yesterday to fix a leak in my tire. Off Bridge Street, there's a place 90 cents flats fixed. Smeary black paint on warped wood plank between two bolt tires. And I go in, and an old black man with a jacket, Gleason hat, greased and soft, with a mass cigar stub in his mouth, and an old Chicano, working the other nomadic hissing tire changer. The walls are dark with rubber. Soot, blown dust everywhere. Rows of worn tires on not board racks for sale. Air hoses snaking and looped over the floor. And I greet the two old men. Hey, how's it going? No response. They look at me as if I just gave them a week to live. I got a tire that needs a tube, I say. And Rudy, a young Chicano, emerges from the darkest part of the room. Ponytailed and plump, walks me out to the truck and looks at the tire. It'll cost you five bucks to take off and change. And I nod. I tell the old Chicano. He tells the old Chicano who pulls the roller jack with a long steel handle out. And I wait in the middle of the grunting oval tire changing machines. While the old guy goes out and returns to my tire, he looks at me like a disgruntled carny handling the ferris wheel for the millionth time. And I'm just a spoiled kid. I watch the two old men work the tire machine, step on the foot levers that send the bar around, flipping the tire from the rim. And I wonder what brought these two old guys to work here on this gray, cold evening in February. Are they ex-cons? Are they drunks? Are they addicts? And then he whips the tube out. Rudy, he yells. And I see a gaping hole in the tube. And he says, I can't patch that. And then Rudy says in Spanglish, No podemos pasear eso. And we got a pile of old tubes over there. We'll do it for 10. And at first I think he might be taking me, but I hedge from that thought. And I watch the machines work. This fleece of air, the final begrudging, poof, a rubber popped loose. And then the holy clank of steel bar against steel gently inserted into the man's waistline. And I turn and I watch MASH on TV suspended from the ceiling. Six o'clock news comes on. Huntington Beach blackened with oil. Rudy comes out and says, it's a shame they do that to our shore. And I realize how I love these working men in the half dark with bald tires like medieval hunchbacks in a dungeon who eat soup and scrape along their lives. How can they live, I wonder, on 90 cents of tire change in today's world? And the old Chicano mumbles at me how cheap I am when he learns my four tires are bald and his spares flat. And I notice his heels chewed to the nails, his fingers black, 
His face is like a weary room and board stairwell of a downtown motel given over to drunks and derelicts. His face is hand-worn like that, you know, by drunks leaning their full weight on it. Wooden steps grooved by hard-soled men into his jawbone. Men just out of prison. Faces condemned by life to live out more days of futility. And I bid goodbye to the black man chopping the cigar. To the Chicano with his head down, and I feel ashamed I can't live their lives for them for a while. I'm grateful, though, they're here. I respect such men who have stories that will never be told. Will bring back to me my simple boy's days when men in oily pants and grubby hands talked in rough tones and worked at simple work, getting three meals a day on the table the hard way. They live in an imperfect world. Unlike men with money who have places to put their shame, these men got none. Others put shame on planes or Vegas trips, cruises. These have no place to put their shame but on their mothers, their kids, themselves. Unlike men who put shame on a new car or a new bank account so they never have to face it, these have become more human with it. And I thought at the time my brother betrayed me leaving at 14. We vowed to always be together. He left to live with some rich folks. And I was taken to the detention center. No place to live. I became a juvie filled with rage at my brother. And these tire ship men made choices never to leave their brothers. And in them, I saw shame with no place to go. Put back in a man's face and his hands and his work and his silence. And as I drove away near my farm that evening, I saw a water sprinkler in the middle of winter shooting an arc of water far over the fence and grass that was intended to water in spring. That fountain of water hit a weed-stickered spot that grew one flower. The only single flower anywhere around in the midst of the rubble brush and the stones, that water hit and touched the dormant seed that blossomed all itself into what it was. Despite the season, despite the weather, despite the surroundings, it came up. Something made sense to me when I looked at it. I'm not quite sure what, an unconditional love of acceptance or of living or taking what came one's way with dignity. But that night in my dream, I cried for the first time ever for my brother as he was leaving. All the words I used against myself, like no good, failure, dissolved in my tears. And my tears poured out of me in my dream and I wept for my brother and wept when I turned after he left and I reached out for him. And I wept in my dream because he was not available for me when I needed him. And all my tears flowed. And how I wept, my feeling, my pain, of abandonment, and all my tears became that arc of water. And I became the flower. By sheer accident, in the middle of nowhere, blossoming. Whoa, you're right. I love it. <laughs> you said I would. I do. What what book did you say that's in? Healing earthquakes. There's a lot of them like that in there. I, I think uh, I have that, but I bought it so long ago I don't remember it specifically. Yeah. Healing anyway, I thought it would be yeah. good for the poetry lovers. I mean, the therapy lovers. Yeah. It's, it's they like it. You know, it's so real. The details are so real. It really immerses you in the scene. It's yeah. just you know real, authentic, whatever word you want to use, is there, you know? There's no question. You know, yeah. it's kind of strange. It's a very strange thing that 
human experience is becoming abstract today. I think uh, a lot of the a lot of the books I read um, tend to tend to be structured in snatches of conversations, hmm. uh, like um, Brown Girl Dreaming. You know, a lot of it takes mm-hmm. place in what she heard from her relatives in the kitchen and different families and stuff. The entire history, really eavesdrops from uh, from people in the kitchen that you listen to and uh, uh, and that's a really that's a good way of structuring a book a poetry book but an awful lot of times experience has been extrapolated into abstraction to a point where you wonder what where the human experience is yeah. besides it being besides it being anemically um, cerebral where you know the entire experience is based on ideas or on reason or on, and has it's, it's 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 missing the blood experience of what there you go. your father and my father or your mother and my mother used to experience. They had blood experiences that uh, that uh, that really got us into the compassion of the, of the experience. And today, I don't know if that's because of texting or computers or I'm not sure what the reason is, but a lot of the books that I read. Are postulations of uh, of just really bizarre lightning uh, shows in you know that are promulgated by ideas. It's very strange. Yeah, that one there you can see it's like you said. It's just pictures, you know. Absolutely, right there. Yeah, the guys, the scene, the TV up in the sky, up and up in the ceiling, you know, and stuff like that. Just yeah. and then then when you see those kind of details, is where I go, oh yeah, it really happened. Yeah, cause I think it happened because I think we share that so much. A lot of yeah. us have, you know, looked around for somebody to fix our tire at some point in time. Definitely, definitely. Well, it looks like we're about done here, uh, so I'm going to close this out. This has been great. So glad you could do this. This, this is very cool. Very, you know, I you know I enjoy it big time. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you guys are good. Thanks for everything you're doing, Charlie. You've always, uh, uh, you've always, uh, you've always been at the, you know, at the forefront of, of. Uh, of making poetry uh, count for the common people in America. I mean, before this in Chicago, you did the same thing, you know, by opening up a reading series and doing all kinds of cool stuff. So listen, thanks a lot for doing that, brother. I really appreciate that. All, right. all these years I've known you doing it and you're still doing it. I can't believe it. you're an old, you're an old dog, dude. Oh, uh, you're just thinking that I'm older than you. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. We've been visiting with Jimmy Santiago Baca, talking to us from New Mexico. Be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter-Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetryspokenhere. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetryspokenhere. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, 
poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.